I'm Tass Mellis of The Starters. This is Ben Golver with the Open Floor Podcast. Hi, I'm Kristen Ludlow from NBA Inside Stuff. I'm OJ Anobi of the Toronto Raptors. Hey, I'm Elena Donon, and welcome to the Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Double Clutch Podcast. I'm one of your usual hosts, Mike Miller. And tonight, for the first time, I'm joined by Adam Taylor. Hey, man, how's it going? Good, mate. You? Yeah, not too bad, man. Not too bad. Excellent. Good to finally get a chance to speak to you. Um, just before we dive into things, if you're not already subscribed to the pod, please uh, do so through whatever your relevant podcast podcast provider is. Please leave us a review. Uh, make sure you're following us at Double Clutch UK on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us uh, admin at doubleclutch.uk. And as if there's a theme going on, the website is www.doubleclutch.uk. Um, Adam, welcome to the show. Your first time on. Um, we like to do this with with guests uh, and. and you know, people when they make their first appearance. Uh, tell us a bit about what you do and how you got into basketball. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. So I am a lead writer and podcast host for Celtics blog of SB Nation. I also write for you guys now as well, which is awesome. Uh, NBA fan for about 25 years. Can't stand football. Never have liked football. Uh saw the Celtics play when it was when Channel 5 had first launched back in the day and they used to have yeah. those Friday games on. Uh, it was a Celtics game. And, you know, in England, it's always you, you support the football team that's closest to you, otherwise you're a glory hunter. <laughs> Boston's literally the closest team to England due to its geographical location. So I've followed with that trend and have followed the Celtics ever since. I, li- I like how you're trying the geographic angle on that one. Um regular listeners will know there are an absolute abundance of Celtics fans in our DC um, hive, I'll call it. <laughs> it's just mad. There's there's such a presence for Celtics fans and, and Knicks fans as well, actually, to be fair, um, throughout the UK. Uh, it, it's kind of baffling given that, you know, and I know you've just played the, the geographic card, but just the actual physical difference between here and there, that those are the two franchises that are sort of gravitated to more it's something that we were talking about a while ago in, in terms of, you know, obviously there's a history there, they're, they're big markets, uh, especially the Knicks, it's a tourist destination. And we see like, you know, there's this pocket of Orlando fans and I, I was talking about whether or not that is a byproduct of people going on holiday to Disney and that. So it's, it's interesting how people, UK fans, select their team to to, to, to follow essentially and, and you you did it based on the first team you, you watched play. Did Do you remember who they played? Honestly, I couldn't tell you. I think it was like the Bulls or something. It was like a prime game. You know what it's like. Yeah, At yeah. that point in time, English media only chose the creme de la creme. <laughs> that was the only bit we got on a Friday night. Um, cool. Uh, so we're going to run through a few topics today, uh, but we're going to we're gonna sort of do a slight twist on them because everyone's... Um, talking about the MVP race and how it's over and it's wrapped up with uh, with Yanis obviously on en route to claiming his second straight back to, well, his back-to-back MVP. Um, we're going to look at it from the angle of what this means in terms of European players in the NBA. So I, I, where should we kick this off? So should we, should we go with a, a brief history perhaps is that best? Um, yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> it's such a... a such an interesting point um, to sort of cover. We're talking back now to, to 1946 was the first foreign-born NBA player, um, Henry Biasati. So that sounds Italian to me, so I'll claim him as as the as the first Italian in the league. And then the first European-born and trained player to sport an NBA jersey was uh, French guy Herve de Boisson or something like that. Uh, played for the Nets in summer 84. And then we had sort of guys like Marcia Lunas, uh, Divac, Petrovic, Schrempf, they came in. Then there was the dream team and the explosion um, of, of sort of basketball as a global sport. And, and they're largely credited with with influencing a later generation of, of NBA European talent. Um, kind of after that point, we got post-peaks of bonus. We got Kukoc, we got lesser players like Rick Smith. Rick Smith's. Um, and then we sort of hit the 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 sort of what was originally, I guess, the the golden era 
Um, we'll get into whether or not it is anymore. Um, thought to be the golden era where we had Pedro Stojkovic, Dirk Nowitzki, Hidu Turkalau, Tony Parker, those kind of guys who were who were really sort of top NBA uh, talents. Um, in terms of the, the history of European players in the NBA, is there, is there any particular favourite you had? Well, in terms of players themselves or all kind of like decades and generations of players? Let's go with players first from that sort of historic uh, or historical sort of pool of players. I mean, I was always a big Dirk guy. I liked the way Dirk Nowitzki plays. I liked the way he kind of revolutionised certain types of shots as well, like this, mm-hmm. the turnaround fadeaway is a Dirk shot predominantly. So yeah. the way that a, a European guy could come into the league and alter such... The, the play style and the way teams were scheming. And he kind of led on to all these different step backs that we see now. James Harden's taken some of those moves. you got guys like Kristaps Porzingis coming in and he's took what Dirt did, refined it, and he's doing that in his own way as well. And then Steph Curry's shooting just from everywhere. A lot of this was based around stuff that Dirk was doing back then simply because of, that's how dominant he was. He was a guy that came into the league with a style that didn't really mesh with the way the league was going at that point. And to me, I kind of credit him with a lot of the developments over the last 15 years in the league. I think that's a fair point. Um, you didn't really get big guys, you know, that, that sort of approaching the seven-foot mark who were willing to step outside the key and take jumpers, let alone stretch out all the way out to three. I mean, obviously there were were guys like um, Sam Perkins, people like that who, you know, big smooth would spread the floor. But Dirk certainly was one of the the sort of, (laughs) no pun intended, but one of the mavericks when it came to to where he would would shoot from. And And you write about him sort of, that influential fadeaway with the kicked out leg and the high release. And I remember KD talking about how that shot was unstoppable and he tried to mimic it. And we've we've seen him in recent years bring that into his game. And another interesting point you made is about how influential he has been. And he probably doesn't get the credit he deserves because obviously with this 3 and D um, era, essentially, where everyone stretches the floor, uh, Curry gets a huge amount of credit for that because the minute he crosses half court, he's had to be picked up and he just lets it fly and set all kinds of three-point records. But in terms of what he was what he is as a player, he's 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 a little guy. Little guys have always been the bombers. This was this was a seven-footer who did it. And and this sort of outside-in style of of European play versus the the inside-out then American NBA style. He, Dirk's influence has, has now essentially it, it was the 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 beginning of the end for the traditional big. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. I mean, teams now, especially contending teams, in fact, rebuilding just all teams now, are looking for their own version of Dirk. Not necessarily in terms of nationality, but they want that large stretch five or a stretch four that can shoot the ball and lock down the lanes and run the rim make sure they're getting blocks. They're, they're looking for guys that have grew up watching Dirk and based their game around him. Mm-hmm. And then you see guys like Kevin Love, who's probably one of the closest things the Americans have got to a Dirk replication, uh, a big guy that can grab boards, that can shoot. He's faded off a bit now, but his passing has always been great for his size as well. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the way Dirk kind of came into the league and revolutionized it, and now you've got a whole system that's predicated kind of on what he brought to the league all those years ago. Definitely one of the most revolutionary guys from Europe. Yeah, um, it feels really weird as we sort of started this conversation to talk about Dirk being part of a past and bygone era, essentially, given that he only retired last season. It already feels so long ago. Um, And obviously Tony Parker's gone as well. Do you think that 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 sort of, that era where Dirk was an all-star um, MVP, you know, at the peak of, of his NBA powers. Do you think that was the golden era for European players in, in the NBA? I think as things stand at the time of recording this podcast, yes, simply because they paved the way. Like Players before them kind of opened the door, but these were the players that came in and showed, look, Europeans can ball out. Mm-hmm. They can come into your team and they can help push you over the line. Guys like Tony Parker that was just a dominant point guard for well over 10, 15, coming on 15 years of his career, 
Dirk, who just, as we said, revolutionised. Whoever comes in now, and there's such a wave of like really high-level European guys playing playing in the NBA, but that's only possible because of the success that that generation had. So in my eyes, that should always be looked at as the golden generation. What we've got now is the platinum generation. Ooh, that's an interesting twist there. I wondered where you're going to go, the platinum generation. Because for me, the, the, although we're only just into this this new era, I, and you know, in terms of the current crop of European players in the NBA who are at the peak, I kind of feel like this is the golden era. Like the, I get that... The, they, you're right, they absolutely paved the way. But in terms of, we've now got, you know, three three guys in the top six for, for most likely to get MVP this year who came from Europe. And it just seems like, although the in the past couple of seasons, the number of international players and European players in the NBA has, has slightly, ever so slightly dipped, the quality of guys in terms of being at the, the top of the league, the number of those guys is higher, if that makes sense. Yeah. So obviously, you know, Tony Parker was always a top 20, top 15 at a push guy in the league. Dirk was a top 10. But now we've got we've got Yanis, we've got Jokic, and of course we've got Luka. It just feels that they are already pushing into that even higher echelon within the league. Is that, is that a fair point? Yeah, that's completely fair. And they're going, their skills are going to be much more polished and much more expansive than either Dirk or Tony Parker just because of the type of players that they are. But I'm sticking with the platinum description because they're going to sign like bigger that. contracts. So they're going to be worth more money and platinum's worth more than gold. <laughs> yeah, they're probably going to be wearing more platinum as well. Um in in terms of the greatest European player ever then, we've already spoken a lot about Dirk. Um what does Giannis need to do to replace him? It's the greatest European. We we, we had a, a, a sort of a, a group discussion, um, an article, probably about a year ago, uh, just based on the the rapid ascension of Luca, where we talked about what we called the Geo, essentially the greatest European of all time, um, and it's firmly Dirk at that point. But it but I made the case that yeah, okay, at this point of writing, pre being awarded the MVP for Yanis, like Dirk is is the top, but. By the time Luca gets near to himself being in that conversation, it's not. I don't think it's Dirk that he's going to need to replace. It's going. It's it's Yanis who he's going to need to to uh, overtake. Essentially, what, what are you, is that blasphemy? No, 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 no. That, that's more than reasonable. I'm in a group chat with um, some American friends of mine. I'm very close with, and we had a similar discussion probably about two weeks ago. And um, the way I worded it to them was. No matter how good Dirk was and how much of a vision, I call him a luminary, how much of a luminary he was for European players in the league, mm. there was never a point in time where he was the undisputed face of the NBA. There was always a Kobe Bryant or a T-Mac, depending on what generations you want to look at. With Giannis, when LeBron decides to hang up his boots, Giannis is heir to that throne and it's going to be undisputable by that point. If he can add some rings to his name, and he can get another MVP or, you know, break some scoring titles, he will be the undisputed face of the league. At that point, he has to be classed as the greatest European player simply because of that fact, because there's been no European that's been the face of the entire NBA before. Yeah, uh, yeah, you, yeah you pre you're preaching to the, the converted here. Um, I, I just, he's so young, he's already putting out historically great seasons. He's got one MVP. He looks set to wrap up a second one. So he's already surpassing Dirk in terms of, you know, MVP trophies. I know that Dirk obviously got the the title and the, the finals MVP as well. And that's that's something that to pre to this point in time has eluded Giannis. And that's probably because he's not really had much of an opportunity to destroy people in the playoffs uh, prior to last year. Um, it's just a, it's just. I can't see it going any other way. This guy, you're absolutely right. He he is, if not already, wrestling the the sort of the face of the league away from LeBron. He's certainly about ready to to Euro step his way once uh, LeBron makes his inevitable decision to retire, which is probably at the rate he's going, probably about another six years. But um, he wants to play with Bronny, right? That's I think that's what he's holding out for at this point in time. 
that's going to be a weird... I'm trying to see how that's going to work in terms of how they're going to... the machinations of doing that. He's going to have to time it where... He's a he, he's his free agency comes at the same time that he can disappear to whichever. Uh, well, you'd expect that if there's a, I don't even know how it's going to work out, but I expect that Bronny will probably be quite high in the the lottery just given his his heritage essentially. Yeah, LeBron's destroying the team's like ten year future to ensure they draft Bronny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. That'd be um, that'd be crazy having them on the same team. It be it will be interesting to see. I just I can't even I can't even fathom it at the minute. It's just it's just absolutely mad. Um, so let's let's just go back into the, the current era of players. So at the start of the the NBA season, there were um, 108 international players from 38 countries and territories. 11 international players on opening night rosters who had been NBA All Stars. If you looked at the the All Star game this year, it was essentially enough for a team world versus team USA what what's the future for for Europeans in the NBA because if if we look at it now you know 13% just over the NBA is European and in terms of foreign presence in the NBA half over half the NBA's foreign presence is European so where where does it go from here because the the NBA are obviously investing in things like the basketball Africa League um looking at other ways they can cultivate talent. What do you see, given how accessible the NBA is now, as being you know, the future of Europeans in the NBA? Are we, are we looking at closer to 50%? How do you see it working out? Yes, yeah, so the way I always look at this is, and I say this for all American sports, not just basketball, the American scholastic system is predicated around a conveyor belt of athletes from a young age to professional sports. Some of their high school teams get more in attendance than some Premier League football teams. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely insane. So they're always going to invest ridiculous sums of money in making sure they have some of the most well-trained, physically dominant, high IQ players that can ever come off of a production line. Mm -hmm. The difference is you the NCAA and College League is not at, at, at the same level as the Euro League, in my opinion. I feel like the Euro League is above college basketball. Yeah, I agree with that. European players go turn pro and go to play in the Euro League from as young as 14, 15. So while they don't get the early years, like the the cogn forming cognitive good habits from four and five, they get high level competition sometimes five to six years before Americans do coming into the league. So I feel like that levels it out. And then mm -hmm. with, with guys like Paul Zingas, with Giannis, Luca, they're showing now that they can come into the league and really flip the narrative and flip the script on what the Americans expect from European players. I'd say in our lifetime, and I say this like it's going to be some huge achievement, but for me, I feel vindicated by seeing other people succeed anyway. Mm -hmm. So... I'd say in our lifetime, we'll see it become like a 60-40 split. 60-40 in favour of the US? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. just, just I, I figured that was it, but just to clarify, uh, I, th I think that's a pretty, yeah, I, I can't really argue with that point at all. Um, just the physicality of the Euro League compared to the NCAA and, and in terms of, of where it is, you know, guys who don't make the NBA but are still decent college players go to Euro League. So, and they make a bunch of cash. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a reason that as a as a rookie, Luca was rolling around in a in an absolute beast of a sports car before anyone else was. Um, it's it's an interesting one to look at because for some reason the there is still I think and I think it's changing slightly, but there's still and using Luca as an example again, there's still like this this blindness of the Americans towards the Euroleague and this this perception that European players are soft to the point where. You know, Aiton gets picked over Luca because they felt that the Euroleague was, you know, this guy was playing in the Euroleague. It didn't really count. And there was, and there was definitely that. I recall that argument at the time, saying, you know, so what? It's it's just the European. It's not the same level of play, and that's obviously incorrect. Do do you think Luca's influence alone is enough to change that, or is he too much of a mercurial talent? And we need to see a couple more guys coming through that are competing at that level before we sort of before people actually turn around and go, hold on a sec, actually, this is the second best league in the world. 
I think from people that understand basketball that, and I hate using this term, but it is very descriptive, casual fans that <laughs> follow the the narratives they see in the media. If they actually understand basketball, they know that these guys coming in are going to be really good players that can dominate in their own right. The argument I had, I had an I was guesting on a, a podcast, an NBA podcast about a month ago, and they were saying that guys like Luka and Jokic are exceptions to the rule and not exactly shining examples of the productivity coming out of Europe. My right. response to that was there's far, there's I think it's like an 80% disparity in NBA draftees that flop dependent on nationality. So by the numbers, for every 100 drafts, every 100 players drafted, if they all flopped, 80 of them would be American. So really, there's just as many bad American players as there is European players. You mm -hmm. just, you're blindsiding. There's a, there's a bit of a obnoxious side to the draft sometimes because of that. Just blinded by the volume. Yeah, just like he's American. Uh, we've scouted him. And that's the difference. These teams have been scouting the American players since grade school, since like year two. They've been they've been in a system. They've gone through AAU. They've been traveling. They've had scouts there at junior games, junior high. Whereas with a Euro guide, they probably don't come onto an NBA team's radar until three years before they declare for a draft. They're a very big unknown compared to the American market. So I, I know that you've been doing some um, scouting of of Euro prospects. Who is who stands out to you as being the next big? uh potentially star essentially to, to to jump from europe to the nba if we're talking somebody that sounds like i can't miss like you if you draft him you're going to get good production i'm going with theo melden okay um, young guy i think he's 18 six foot five point guard can shoot from pretty much i'd say just under steph curry range but he's got deep range um pick and roll maestro loves to come off the screen and he'll hit the the roller or he'll run slip screens or double stacks and then try and catch some guy on the corner. His weakness though is he's a little bit slow for my liking. A bit a very typical European point guard in terms of he plods more than he sprints. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um if he can figure out a way to speed up a little bit, his ball handling skills are good, but there's another point guard that's out there called Killian Hayes. Mm -hmm. who is a ball handling extraordinaire. Not Kyrie Irving level, but his handle is he'll he'll break some ankles in the NBA. I'm pretty sure of that over time. Uh problem with him is he can show up and ball out one night and then the next night he'll go scoreless and probably have seven turnovers. Both <laughs> of those guys are young. Um they both project to be high level point guards and I'm expecting to see them drafted within the next year or two. Yeah, I <sighs> As I said before the show, you know way more about draft prospects than me. Um, but Killian Hayes was one guy I had heard of. Uh, so that, that probably, if he's come onto my uh, radar already and I don't really do any sort of scouting uh, until after the draft and I start looking at Summer League, um, that probably means he's got a pretty high uh, potential ceiling. Let's, let's, let's move now, but stick with the idea of the future and developing and let's talk about the G League which I don't think anyone else really talks about and, and we probably ought to because you know it's it's becoming more and more an essential part of the NBA and a player's development and journey throughout their NBA career um, this season they've had 28 franchises all linked to an NBA team the only two teams that don't have affiliation are the, the Nuggets uh, and the Blazers. And uh, next year, there will be a, a 29th team that uh, is in Mexico. So they're, they're already expanding internationally. They're obviously trying to get out there, um, gr grow in new markets, establish footholds there for later on. Obviously, they have the Mexico games there uh, a couple of times a year. The G League itself, we've seen... We've seen more players than we actually would have thought come up through the G League. Uh, how important is it to the future of the NBA from your perspective? Well, they're investing in it really highly. Like f English football teams have reserve teams. They have youth academy to reserve, and then when you're good enough, you can go and 
sit on the bench for the first team. Um, NBA teams don't really have that. You get drafted, and if you're not good enough, you're going to sit on the bench and not have a chance to develop. And then your contract's going to expire, and you're going to go elsewhere. Now they have the G League, and you can have your two-way contracts. You can send any of your players down to your affiliated G League team as well. Uh, Romeo Langford of the Boston Celtics is a fully guaranteed NBA rookie. Spent time with the Red Claws this year. is a good example of that. I feel like that's great. It gives players time to learn the system that the their parent team mm-hmm. use. Um, and by doing so, that when they do get called back up, they're actually put in a position to succeed rather than put in a, a sink or swim scenario. The G League itself as a as a league within itself has really put effort into building a more lucrative contract scheme as well mm-hmm. to kind of retain the NBA, the uh, American talent pool and not let them go abroad. I feel like they're going to be one of the best developmental tools that the NBA has actually got, but it's going to take time because at the moment players are still seeing the money they can make in China, in Europe. Uh, you've got guys like Lamelo Ball that's gone out to Australia and really improved. Uh, the Australian fan base is a rabid fan base, so it's going to take time. And until the money is on par and there's parity in earning potential between the G League and the Euro League and elsewhere. It's always going to be that tier below the other competitions, unfortunately. It, it is an interesting one because the, I, I feel like there's some trepidation on the league's part in terms of um, crossing the NCAA because it's just the NCAA has been sort of ingrained as this is the route to the NBA. You go to college, um, you then get drafted, and that's it. You know they got rid of the they got rid of the straight from high school, the, the preps to pros process uh and the last cba they're talking about bringing it back this time around i think they need to bring it back because i mean there are examples of, of guys who were busts but there's also a hell of a lot of examples of guys who were completely changed the league you know the lebrons the garnets the tracy mcgrady's the kobe's all these guys just were you know immediately able to to come you know not immediately not immediately able to contribute but certainly they were within a few years elite players and I, I don't know why there, there's been sort of a, a latency in challenging them. They've now got the the select contract, which is 125k um, alternative to one and dones, which is just if you do if you're a one and if you're good enough to be a one and done player, it's kind of like what what is the point in even going to college? It just makes a mockery of the whole system. Um, you're right about the, the money. It's got to be better because 125k is nowhere near as good as they get in China. It's nowhere near as good as they get. Anywhere elsewhere in the league, I think RJ Hunter is in was in Australia this year for a million. And if you give me a choice of one, two, five K to stay home or one million to go halfway across the world, probably going to take the million. And every time, every time, and every time. And uh, I think Woj had an article last year where he he said, "Well, one, two, five isn't even enough to stop them going to college because you know, wink, wink, players in in college get paid, and the actual you know the addition of things like exposure on a national scale." And playing against air quotes weaker competition gives you a, a build a, a bigger platform to build your profile. And, and he points to the example of uh, Zion Williamson, who who obviously absolute phenom, but plays half a season in the NCAA, gets gets a thirteen mil uh, shoe contract off the back of it. And in the, in the his argument, which I think is slightly flawed, given that Zion is the the, the sort of subject, is that. Is it likely that a guy who goes and plays against 26-year-olds scrapping for a paycheck is going to walk out after a year and be offered 13 mil on a shoe deal? And I kind of, I kind of get it, but I think that you know Zion is the kind of guy who's the exception that disproves the rule. Um, but it's it, it, something's got to happen. I, I, I very rarely talk about football, um, mainly because I don't follow it, as people, regular listeners will know. I talk about it to slander it. Yeah, well, you said before we we hit record that you hate football, and so we're in the same boat completely. Because I just, I, you know, but to be fair to them, the idea of developmental academies is fantastic. They, I yeah, don't I see why it's agree. not. Yeah, I don't see why it's not done. You know, more with the NBA at all. It's just ridiculous. They do it in Europe. We talk about Barcelona and Madrid's academies and the way they matriculate players from. You know, the, the, Barcelona is the shining example to me. You know, they 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 basically charge a minimal amount 
to come to official FC Barcelona, which is the name for all their sports clubs, um, training sessions. They filter out the best talent and they start sort of pushing them down the, the particular sport that they show the most promise in, but they don't do it until they're about 12, 13. And then they start pushing, you know, the gazoles, they push them down to the basketball route, that sort of thing. Um, it just, I get that it's a massive upheaval and an overturn of what's been a, a cultural system for so long, but it would make so much sense to have that opportunity to 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 farm essentially, for want of a better word, your own prospects. You see, in a in a respect, I feel like that's what the NBA does with like the AAU and the NCAA. Anywhere, there's such a limited amount of raster spots on the NBA compared to when we're looking at football. Um, there's so many teams worldwide that if you don't make it at your team, there's always going to be a team elsewhere that's willing to give you an opportunity. Whereas if you don't make it into the NBA, where do you go from there? And that's where I see the G League as being a good position. If you go undrafted, then there is that opportunity to go and play for the Mad Ants or the Red Claws. But as you said, why are you going to accept 125k? when a team in Australia is going to give you a million dollars and you can be chilling on the beach every day. <laughs> it, it makes like, I'm not going to want to be sitting on a coach going all around America sweating mm-hmm. and tornadoes to the left of me and earthquakes to the right when I could just be in Australia chilling with the kangaroos or in China earning something ridiculous. I mean, what was it? What did Jimmy Fredette get when he went to China? It was ridiculous. Uh, money. Yeah, it was stupid money. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily given recent history, uh, be convinced that in terms of geographical freaks of nature things, that Australia is the best place to be. What were those the fires they had about a month ago? <laughs> you know? Oh, no, I completely agree. It's, um, but in general, you're going to choose Australia over go, 85% of, of the United States. And I'd give anything to live in the USA. Um, LA is one of probably my favourite place on the planet. Boston is close there to... Yeah, you're allowed to say that as a Boston fan. You're allowed to admit that that LA is a great place to be. Not on a Boston podcast, Um, though. On this podcast, yes. I've got good friends in LA. I go out there when I can. Uh, Boston is awesome, but it's super cold. LA is awesome and it's super warm. So as an English guy, I'm always choosing the warmth. (laughs) I think that's fair. Um, Let's let's stick with the G League for for a little bit longer. Is is. Is there anyone in particular in the league right now that is is standing out to you as someone who's got uh, either potential to jump to the NBA um, or someone who perhaps just has caught your eye, but, you know, for whatever reason, you don't think they're they're capable of making that jump? Yannick Matten from the Red Claws. And I only know this because I watched the Red Claws to report on them for Celtics blog from time to time. He is a really good stretch forward. He can shoot the three. He's been playing. He's been swapping minutes with Taco Fall, um, who I'm very not high on. So if, if you ever ask me my opinion of Taco Fall, it's going to be very anti-popular opinion. Okay. Um, but Yante Matten has been an absolutely solid deputy. At times, he's actually kept Taco out of the lineup uh, towards the beginning of the season. Can shoot the three. Can grab the rebounds. Is a solid pick setter. Times his rolls to the hoop really well. The only problem is he is laterally slow, so he doesn't move his feet laterally quite quick enough. And his hip movement is very Enes Kanter-esque in terms of very still. Yeah. He really struggles to rotate those hips quick enough to be stay in front of guys. But he he's utilized very much so in the drop defense scheme for, for the Red Claws. Mm-hmm. He's just got really good change of pace out of the pick and roll. I feel like he could make a good addition to... A team that's not tanking, but not ready to contend either. Sure. No, that, that, that makes sense. Um, why do you hate Taco then? Come on, let's, let's dig into that quickly. Because he's just a mascot, dude. He, I don't think he's a good basketball player by any stretch of the imagination. If you're as tall as he is, then you're going to be earning money on an NBA team. It's it's that simple. Um, I, don't th- I like Boban. A lot more. I don't think Boban is a highly skilled NBA player either, but I think Boban has more skill in his right toe than <laughs> Taco has everywhere. Um, I think that's fair, actually. Boban is. I think he's got an underrated uh, touch around around the rim. He's, you know, he's just, uh, for those hands to be so big and so soft, it's just it's it's an incredible thing. Um, 
Taco, though. I, I get what you're saying. He's essentially become the modern day Red Owlback Victory Cigar. Is is the way I've seen him. He's just he's sort of rolled out for the enjoyment of the fans when when the game's done. I don't see him becoming a game changer. Like I have a lot of interactions with Celtics fans online, and some of it is very irrational, based around the fact that oh well, he's like seven five, seven six. That means he's the best rim protector in the league. <laughs> It doesn't. It means he's nearly as high as the rim, but it doesn't mean he protects it very well at all. He's he's the size of a stick. <laughs> he can just, like he's just going to get bodied. Guys like LeBron are just going to shoulder barge him out of the way. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, in terms of people I've seen in the G League, and I don't think he's going to translate to the NBA at all. But um, Westchester Knicks, Kenny Wooten. I, I've, I don't know if you've caught any of his highlight blocks online, but he's he's averaging about three and a half a game. He's six foot eight forward uh, who takes no threes, so there's no way his game translates to the NBA. But if you want to see some of the most incredible athletic blocks you've ever seen, his videos are abs- his highlight reels are just absolutely mad. They're just they're just minutes and minutes of going up, you know, above the square and swatting things and just absolutely spiking them. Uh, off the court, which I get is not necessarily the best way to to corral and to, uh, turn the possession over, but it's just an amazing highlight to watch. Um, in terms of in terms of big names that that have spent time in the NBA, obviously, what one of the things I like is that uh, established players are sent down to recover for a, a couple of games. I remember again, Tony Parker's name is coming up a lot on this podcast, but I remember him going down. Uh, a year or two ago for a few games when one of his many um, sort of hamstring injuries. Uh, and then he had guys like Danny Green was a, a G-leaguer. Uh, Gerald Green, Hassan Whiteside, who you, I, I don't have a high opinion of Hassan Whiteside, to be fair. Um, Robert Covington as well, who is obviously developed into one of the league's premier 3 and D guys. Um is there, is there anyone in particular who stood out for you who's managed to make that transition who just for whatever reason you're just like that's an awesome example of someone who has been able to to work their way up into the the highest tier of, the, of basketball in the world I think Robert Covington has to be like the shining light of those examples he's he's on a contender he's one of the best wing defenders in the league another guy and Daniel House, he just destroyed mm-hmm. the Celtics the other day. Um, I hate the guy. Uh, <laughs> I'm only joking. He, um, he's a good player. I wouldn't say that he's going to be lighting the league on fire, but he's a solid role player. He'll have minutes in the league for the next five to six years. And then if we're looking more over the last few days, Shake Milton put up some numbers, broke mm. some records as well. Um, all after he'd been told by Brett Brown that he was all but out of the rotation. So to do that with a chip on your shoulder and do it so efficiently at the same time was really impressive. It, it's amazing and quite scary, actually, the quality of player that doesn't get, for whatever reason, doesn't get their opportunity to shine. And so we just assume, you know, that, and and this again, this, this everyone who's in the NBA, all 450 players are elite and I get there are different degrees where you know the top one percent is is miles ahead of the 450th player but to even get to the NBA you need to be a, a, a beyond you know normal in terms of athleticism coordination and we, we you mentioned things like lateral slowness I bet compared to to any of us these guys are you know they would wipe the floor with us um but it's it's not just having that skill set it's having the opportunity to and and the system around you to to get in there and contribute and it take and sometimes it takes something as much as a star player going down to give a guy that opportunity. I mean, Lynn Sanity is a perfect example of that. It just no one expected that from uh, from Jeremy Lynn, who I think at the time was living on his brother's couch when he got the call up, and he's managed to make what another six years or so of a career out of it. Um, obviously now he's not in the league; he's, he's in China at the minute. But he's just he's gone from sofa surfing to probably living quite a comfortable lifestyle on on millions and millions of dollars it's it's just it's mad how how sort of difficult it is to to even if you're that good get to the nba it's mad yeah and another thing that really baffles me and somebody actually asked me this on a whatsapp message today was 
are players actually busts or were they just drafted by the wrong team? Yeah. Or were they just called up by the wrong team mm-hmm. um, from the G League in that aspect, if we look at it like that? And when you're looking at how good each and every one of these guys need to be to be able to play at the level they do and against the level of competition that they do, you have to ask yourself, like, um, was Bennett really a Buster's first pick or was the team that drafted him just a wrong team for him? Did they deploy a terrible system for him? Markel Fultz is a different story because obviously he had the accident and then he had to relearn to use his arms. Um, so you you put that one down as just unfortunate. I feel very sorry for him, to be quite honest. Uh, I don't know if you know too much about that. I I, I, I understand the, the shoulder injury um, and I, I haven't dived too much into what went on behind the scenes in Philly where he, he was essentially not given... Not, not really given the opportunity to shine. Essentially, he seems to be making up for it in in Orlando. But you know, if you if you, you can dive right into it if you want. Yeah. So I spoke to um somebody from the Philadelphia media, um probably about nine months ago now. Uh, just getting into, I was basically bragging that Jason Tatum was amazing and Mark Alfort wasn't. <laughs> and then they were like, um, well, yeah, you're right, but this is why. And they were like, Markel Fultz had some form of motor vehicle accident after he got drafted, which destroyed his shoulder and damaged some of the nerves in there to the point where he had to relearn to use his motor skills in his hand and to lift forks up to feed himself. Oh, wow. Which... Why isn't um, that more... Maybe I missed that one, but that doesn't yeah, sound like the sort I mean, of thing I'd have missed. That sounds like huge. But then I was like, well, why isn't this all over the news? Why is he getting... And he's like, because it's been kept under wraps because... Philadelphia knew, I think it was when he declared for the draft, but before he'd been drafted and Philly knew this Mm. and still drafted him anyway, thinking, oh, it's not as bad as what he actually was. Whether or not this this person is very credible, but whether or not this information is credible is different. Mm -hmm. But I've heard it from multiple people now, but none of them have been like um, on record when saying it. I think one of them was on a podcast, so that's technically on record. Um, but yeah, so he he had damaged nerves in his shoulder. He had to relearn to use his motor skills in that hand. And that's why his jump shot looked so broken, where he was bringing the ball up and then kind of freezing. And uh, mm-hmm. it was very robotic, wasn't it? It was mm-hmm. kind of, I bring it up and then I chuck. Uh, and that was because he didn't have the motor skills to have that fluid motion like that, which then makes you feel very sorry for the guy because he was an elite point guard in college. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of sort of other players whose careers have been derailed um, with in vehicle accidents as well, like uh, Jason Williams with the Bulls, who was a solid point guard. Um, that's going back a, a little while, but it it's it's I find that really fascinating that that story did not make it out into to the you know public awareness, given especially because it's, it's it makes the redemption um, arc so much more. Emphasized in that, you know, what he's doing in Orlando now is even more impressive. If that makes sense, I mean, it was it was pretty good for a guy who who basically struggled to get on the floor at all last year, um, and now he's he's sort of contributing. But to have gone from not being able to use your arms, that just seems that seems quite remarkable. That's, a, that's I, I appreciate you sharing that one with me because I, I did not know that one. Yeah, I can't say the person's name yeah, obviously because no, I'm not. But, um, I'm looking at a New York Times article now that I had saved previously. I have like a little bookmarks folder for things in case I ever need to come back to them like this. Um, New York Times went on record saying he had a neurogenic thoracic thoracic outlet syndrome, which affects the nerves between the neck and shoulder, resulting in abnormal functional movements and range of motion, thus severely limiting Markel's ability to shoot a basketball among other daily activities. See, see, that bit I knew, but I didn't know the cause was something like a car accident, and I didn't know that Yeah, it was... I heard it was a motorbike or like a quad bike or something like that. Yeah, I, I, yeah and I didn't, I didn't know that he had to relearn to use his arms, which is just, you know, for, for a basketball player, is just a massive thing to overcome. Um, let's, let's move on, but let's stick with health weirdly um coronavirus has made it onto the podcast because obviously the world is is panicking to i don't know if i'm over or underselling this at the minute there's there is i think it's fair to say that the world is on significant alert 
as to the the coronavirus and preventing the spread of it. Um, the NBA is no different. So uh, Tuesday, a report came out from Woj and Lowe uh, that they co- collaborated on about uh, the memo that <laughs> the NBA teams were sending to, to uh, sorry, the, the, the NBA was sending to their respective teams um, with some guidelines as to what you should and shouldn't do, etc. cetera. Uh, the start of the Basketball Africa League, which we mentioned earlier, which is obviously a key part of developing um, players in the African continent, uh, that's that's been delayed. It was supposed to start Friday the thirteenth, and uh, the, the press release today just said it's been postponed whilst this is sorted out. FIBA are postponing and cancelling events. There's even talk of the the Tokyo Olympics being pushed back. So it's this is this is huge. Um, I I spoke with uh, our resident doctor, who's not actually yet a doctor. He's he's quite he's, he's he's going through his degree at the minute. Uh, but Jonas Stott, one of our writers, about the coronavirus itself. Um, but I just wanted to get your take on on the the sort of requirements that the league has made because there are uh, or suggestions rather because there are some really quite odd little things they've included in that. So what did what did you make of it? Not being able to high five and you have to fist bump instead is absolutely hilarious. Yeah, like and, and not to make light of what could be a, a horrific situation, you know, the, the spread of this disease. But it kind of felt to me like, do you remember? Um, I say, do you remember? Like, do you remember history lessons when they talk about the plague and things like that, and the, the doctors wore those beak mask things? Do you remember any of that? Or is this just me? <laughs> so, no, I think I do. Like, so, um... yeah. So, plague doctors essentially wore these these like masks that looked like bird schools essentially, and they were all stuffed with like um, aromatic fragrance things because they thought that the uh, the disease was passed through um, poor air quality and it just seems that kind of baffling approach you know um okay guys this is a a disease that's spread by contact uh, or potentially spread by contact so instead of using the palms of your hands you're going to use your knuckles instead yeah and that's going to solve everything this is a virus that can live up to three to four days on a surface yeah and you can still touch somebody but don't use the palm of your hands because that's going to it's insane and exactly, and, and like, how many? I, I don't know. It would be interesting to know if they had a stat for this, you know, because the NBA is loaded with stats. But how many players wipe their nose with the palm of their hand or the back of their hand when they're just like sniveling away? Who knows? Who knows? But it just seems like a, yeah. I just, I just read it and just went, "You've got to be kidding me!" That's that just seems like a, a really weird guideline to have, um, especially when you're guarding a guy and your arms in his back and then your other arms kind of towards his shoulder as he's posting up to you, that amount of contact there is far worse than just a high five. Well, imagine, for example, you, you just mentioned it, it lives three to four days on a surface. So player A dribbles the ball, yeah. contaminates the ball, player B catches the ball, now contaminated. Um, new rule, every shot, new basketball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that, oh, man, it, it's it's interesting. So, But on a serious note, so I spoke to, to Jonah, um, and he's saying essentially the the belief is that the viral particles are sent through the air in droplets, and if they land in airways, you know, mouth, throat, or or open orifices such as the eyes, then the person is more likely to contract the disease. Um, it's technically possible to con- contract it by hand uh, contact. Um, however, this would then require the the person who is then you know picked up the virus to then rub their nose or eyes or face whatever to induce transmission um he he went into some you know medical speak which is above me most of it i managed to catch um mainly because he dumbed it down well enough for me but essentially they're also saying that it's not known if the virus is small droplets or large droplets and if it's small they float around in the air more so it's more likely that they breathe it in on the court um he raised a couple of interesting points which is what you know what could happen to the nba if there is an outbreak so could we see games played behind closed doors and what sort of impact would that have because we already know the salary caps going down next season if they start losing gate revenue as well and this obviously this is purely speculation but that could have a massive impact on on you know, going way beyond, you know, and I get I'm focusing perhaps on the wrong thing here, not looking at the health thing, but looking at the financial aspects of the league. But can, is there is there a point where you could see that the NBA has to to stop 
Because at the minute, the, the Chinese Basketball Association is completely stopped until further notice, until they can get a candle on this. I think there has to always be that option on the table. When you're talking about health, like regardless of just the fans' health and playing a game behind closed doors, I understand these guys are like the most fierce competitors you can get on the, like, on the face of the planet. Any professional athlete is an immense mm-hmm. uh, competitor. But at the same time, you want to be able to compete next year and the year after that. So if it means shortening the year and ending it and basically handing the title over to the Bucks, who have the best record or whoever it may be, or replaying it once the virus calls down, it has to be a viable option. Because just because there's no fans doesn't mean that one of these players won't contract it when they're out of the arena and they're socialising with friends and family and so forth. Yeah, I imagine if a player were to get it, then things would change quite drastically. Um, because obviously, you know, and again, this is something Jonah mentioned, was that he, he would, wouldn't be surprised if they were already being tested, not infrequently, just to make sure no one's got it. Because obviously, they, I mean, the level of medical detail that the NBA go into anyway, in terms of um, how a player is on a daily basis, they, I, I think it was Jared Dudley on... I'm trying to think of whose podcast he was on the other week. It might have been Zach Lowe. And he was talking about the different checks that the Nets would go through where they would check the elasticity of joints. And they were able to predict about three weeks before it happened that his hamstring was going to go two seasons ago. And it was just, if, you, you, if you're if on that in tune, there's no way you're not already thinking about could this, you know, what could this look like? Should we be testing for it? There's no way you're not already taking that into consideration with all the tests you already do. It's it's quite a remarkable situation that we're even having this conversation. I think that that that, that the potential for a a spread of disease could impact, you know, essentially something we watch for fun. Yeah, we've got our priorities right, dude. <laughs> it's it's crazy. <laughs> it's it is crazy. It really is. Um, to be fair, though, like um, from a selfish perspective, if I'm quarantined for the next two weeks because I'm on lockdown, league then I, I, I need league pass. Like, if you're not playing either, now this is actually torture, and I'm very upset. <laughs> well, at least at least worst case situation, you can get on two K, start running a a sim season or something. Yeah, that's <laughs> the only option, right? Start watching the full forty eight minute uh, games on uh, on two K. Um, cool. Is there is there anything else you want to hit before we go? Nah, man, I'm very happy for you to have let me on here, though. I'd like to say thank you for that. Oh, no worries. It was a, a pleasure to have you. Um, okay, so that, that'll do for this week's episode. Um, if, as I said at the start, if you're not already subscribed, please do so. Leave us a review. Uh, make sure you're following us on all social media platforms at Double Clutch UK. The website is www.doubleclutch.uk. You can find me uh, on, on all social media platforms at Mike Miller underscore time. And you're at Adam Taylor MBA, is that right? That's right, yep. Perfect, cool. Well, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, We'll catch you again next week. Bye.